0: Welcome to D5 by Design, where we talk all things
1: blockchain and cryptocurrency, while striving to educate, empower, and enrich.
2: Welcome back to the D5 by Design podcast, brought to you by the Rollup, a media and education company that provides high quality actionable insights and information on all things layer 2s, roll-ups, DeFi, scaling solutions, new protocols, juicy alpha, and insightful research. We're excited to share with you the latest trends and development in DeFi space so you can stay informed and ahead of the curve. Without further ado, we will jump right into this episode with a brief update on some of our current sponsors. Buffer Finance is a non-custodial exotic options trading platform built to trade short-term price volatility and hedge risk of high leverage positions. They are a leader in the arbitrum charge taking over on layer twos and totally understand the potential of blockchain technology and how it's transforming the finance industry. They are proud to support DeFi by design. If you're looking for a platform to trade short-term options, look no further than Buffer Finance. With their innovative tech, easy to use platform, they're at the forefront of the options tech in Arbitrum. Visit their website, buffer.finance and take a look and all their options. ZKX is a leader in the decentralized derivative DEX market on StarkNet. StarkNet is a cutting-edge technology built to help scale Ethereum using ZK rollups. They understand the potential of scaling blockchain tech and how it's going to change the world of leverage trading. ZKX protocol is happy to be on testnet and will be on mainnet very shortly. Check out ZKX Protocol on Twitter, as well as on Crew3 to get more information about what's going on on StartNet.
1: What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the roll-up. As I'm sure you guys all know, we are normally a DeFi, DeGen, crypto-native audience. Uh, We're still going to be talking about blockchain. Uh, We're still going to be talking about scaling to mass adoption. And we are lucky enough to have Mina from WorldPay on today, which is a mega Goliath conglomerate in the Web2 payment processing space. Um, So they are absolutely huge and they are a pioneer when it comes to Web2 payment companies adopting blockchain and thinking about it, researching it um, with an open mind. Um, So I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. It's going to be a little bit of a twist uh, than what we normally do. So Mina, welcome to the channel. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, how are you feeling? Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about WorldPay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Robbie. Um, good to be here. Things are going well. Um, I can maybe start with giving some background about what I do at WorldPay and then introduce to the audience a bit about what the company does. So I'm Mina, I'm actually based in New York. I was based in our London office prior, been with the company for over three and a half years and come from a strategy and consulting background prior to my time at WorldPay. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. So I think the way that you described the company was great. Mega Goliath. I think I'm going to use that on my business card. Um, so we are the world's largest payment processor or in industry lingo, we call it a merchant acquirer. And so the way to describe what a payment processor does is when you buy something online from a merchant and by merchant, I mean a store, and that can be an e-commerce store or a point of sale at a brick and mortar store we are actually the layer that enables that store to accept different types of payments. So that could be a card payment, an e-wallet, bank transfers, local payment methods. So it's actually a lot of people don't realize when you're using a debit card or a credit card, your bank or Visa and MasterCard, they don't have a direct relationship with the merchant that you're buying from. So all merchants around the world use what we call a payment processor. So we're the number one player in that we actually support a million merchants globally. We process two trillion dollars of funds globally. And within the crypto space specifically, we've done 40 billion dollars worth of transactions in and out of the crypto space. We operate in 64 countries around the world and we expand that every year. Um, We're very big in the e-commerce space and the point of sale space as well. Um, Other than payments, we also offer adjacent products like chargeback, disbursement products, fraud products, reporting and reconciliation. So anything and everything in payments anywhere in the world, really, we can probably help you. Um, We're the leading player in airlines and travel and proud to stay in the crypto space as well. So I'm really, you know, consider ourselves and my team specifically a leading bridge between traditional finance or fiat ecosystems. And the crypto system, ecosystem, or digital asset ecosystem, more
1: specifically. I love it. That that's a great intro. Um, I I think it's uh, I think it would be helpful to build some context around the existing architecture of payment processors and how you have installed uh, WorldPay um, at this layer. Kind of like what what are the other uh, supporting frameworks? on on either side right cuz you guys are like this middle layer and you help facilitate transaction volumes between merchant merchants and and processors and banks so maybe you could just name drop you know who who are some of the the companies and businesses that you work with on each of those vectors the the merchant services the banks and the payment processors
0: yeah it's a really good question and i think it's one that a lot of people don't realize when they tap a card what's actually happening under the hood So to speak. So Mm -hmm. um, just to walk you through what a funds flow would look like in its most simple form, and I'll name drop some of the players or intermediaries that we would work with when you make a card transaction. Let's use the example of buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks. The funds actually have to flow from the bank to what we call schemes and schemes are like Visa, MasterCard, Discover, etc. So that your money as a consumer would actually move from your bank account and your bank would have an integration with the scheme, say Visa. So the money's going from your bank to visas bank, and then it would go over to a payment processor like WorldPay's bank. And then we would do the final or last mile delivery or what we call settlement of those funds to the merchant. And that's in its simplest form. And this layer, both from a technology perspective and from a contract perspective gets even more complex than that because there could be multiple payment processors. The funds could move from multiple banks and there's, you know, folks that might be introducing in the middle, like we call them ISOs, um, so there's a lot of intermediaries which creates a really fragmented tech stack and a really fragmented ecosystem, which causes a lot of inefficiencies in the way that money moves today, both locally, as well as especially for cross-border payments. And there's different use cases, right? So there's payments and how money moves in payments. There's also disbursements. There's also remittances. And so any use case you look at for chadfire or traditional finance, um, today, there's a lot of room for improvement, even though from a consumer perspective, it looks super simple. When you tap your card, you get your coffee on the back end. The merchant is actually paying a ton of intermediaries, a chunk of their revenue, and they have a big working capital time lag between when you tap your card and they actually get that money and uh, a critical issue. in that is today. Merchants aren't paid, for example, over the weekend. So cryptocurrency and blockchain technology operates 24-7, 365. You can move value across the Internet at all times. And we definitely are interested to explore the use cases of that when you think about moving funds from A to B in the most traditional sense.
1: And, And I think you hit on two key inefficiencies that are inside this existing architecture in the fiat world and the traditional financial world. One of them is the fragmentation of liquidity. And you mentioned how there's money over here. There's money over there. It has to move from one bank to another to ultimately land in the merchant's bank. And then the other key inefficiency that you mentioned is time to settlement. And a lot of times, sometimes settlement is T plus one or T plus two or T plus three if it's over the weekends. And blockchains enable instant settlement right? because you're interacting directly with the settlement layer. So that, that was a really helpful background on the existing architecture of traditional financial systems. Now, could you explain a little bit about how you guys are thinking about blockchain and crypto and how you're starting to incorporate that into your your tech stack?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think for anyone that's interested in this space, when you read a layer one protocol white paper, for example, that of Bitcoin, one of the first use cases that you hear about or read about is payments, payments, remittances, financial inclusion, and so on. So for us, in early 2019 is when we decided to make crypto a core focus, excuse me, vertical for our company and started to formalize things like what's our risk appetite in the space? How do we appropriately monitor it? What controls will we have to make sure that we can prevent things like money laundering or sanctions evasion, things like that, and hiring talent and expertise. So we got our executive team comfortable and they this kind of investment in the space has paid dividends for us where traditionally, you know, back in the late teens, um, 2017, 18, 19, we had about two clients and now we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 30. And what we do traditionally for merchants around the world is naturally enable traditional fiat payment services for these merchants. So what we do, a big part of our focus area is that what we call fiat on ramps and off ramps. So if you're a customer and you're looking to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum, You can do that on an exchange or an OTC desk or a wallet using a number of different payment methods. So traditionally what we've done in this space is work with merchants that are selling crypto services or crypto products um, and, and help give them the ability to accept payments all over the world in the consumer's preferred payment method. So that was our number one kind of goal in the space, but we also hold a longer term vision for the potential of blockchain technology as a whole to create really significant efficiencies in payments, some of which I've touched on, but it's really important for us to separate cryptocurrency as kind of an asset class versus distributed ledgers as a technology. And when I talk about fiat ecosystems, I mean current payment rails, I mean existing ledgers and who's owning those ledgers versus what can we do if it's all online with a distributed ledger tech as a backbone. Um, So we're focusing on kind of secure and compliant now implementation of that technology. Um, I'll give you an example of that. So WorldPay recently launched, and we're the first payment processor to do this, an option for merchants to receive the settlement value I mentioned in stablecoin. So specifically USDC, we've partnered with Circle to enable that and go to market with that. So, if you're a merchant, um, whether you're a traditional merchant in retail or travel and airlines, or whether you're a cryptocurrency merchant like a wallet or an OTC desk, before you would be receiving settlement in a menu of currencies that we used to offer, like euros, GBP, USD. But now, if you if you desire to have that liquidity and you know measure your, uh, sorry, monitor your treasury with stablecoin, you can receive that directly from WorldPay. And I think um, stablecoins is definitely a space that I think has become the backbone of what we might know as the modern crypto industry and where we see a lot of Web2 companies play and a lot of regulators give a lot of attention um, because, you know, using fiat as a liquidity source or a primary treasury currency, especially if you're a crypto native company, doesn't really work. So I can give you an example. So small exchanges, if you are a customer and you place an order on that exchange, that exchange, because it's a small player, doesn't necessarily have the liquidity to fulfill your order. So they have to go to a third party liquidity provider and that third party liquidity provider might want to be paid in stable coins. They don't want fiat. So there becomes this gap in time between when WorldPay is able to pay our merchant, which is the exchange, and when our merchant needs to send money to the liquidity provider. So for us to be able to give that merchant stablecoin kind of closes a pretty material working capital need for them. Um, And it's tough when you're operating a global crypto exchange and people are paying tens of billions of dollars in with a card to be able to to manage that. So we do get approached by a lot of traditional verticals, by people in payments, people in treasury, people who are thinking about the efficiency of their corporate treasury and money movements, etc. Um, and they're interested in stable coins because it's the easiest way to dip your toes in the water. So to speak, there's no tax considerations because there's no appreciation or depreciation of the asset. You avoid things like volatility. Um, and there is a saying that, you know, eventually most of the companies in the world are going to work towards becoming a financial services company. And if you look at merchants that are using things like loyalty programs or their own branded credit card programs. That's gone up a lot in the past few years. And the trend is definitely how can we leverage FinTech to make our tech stack more efficient and stablecoins is a way to do that. But it's also a way for merchants to explore a journey where they can offer their end consumers, things like lending or yield, which is a lot quicker on blockchains. So there's a use case for merchants being more efficient in house but also giving something really attractive to their end consumers. And so WorldPay is exploring, you know, as a tech stack, how can we make that easier for our customers?
1: There's there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm, I'm glad you brought stable coins into the loop because that seems to unlock a lot of liquidity that is currently in the fiat world. And there's crypto companies that want to cross that chasm and WorldPay seems like it's one of the main bridges, especially with a partnership with Circle. Um, WorldPay seems like it's one of the main bridges between the fiat world and the, the crypto world, meaning stable coins and on-chain liquidity. So I think you brought up a, a very important distinction between cryptocurrencies and blockchain, right, which is also known as distributed ledger technology. And I'm curious what you see as the appetite for some of the Some of the companies that you work with, is the appetite more to accept Bitcoin and and cryptocurrency as an accepted currency to use for commerce and merchants, Um, products and services? They want to accept cryptocurrency, or is it more of an adoption and an appetite for blockchain and distributed ledger technology? And it's not so much that merchants want to include additional Uh, currencies, but more so that they want the efficiency of a distributed ledger?
0: Yeah, I would say it's definitely the latter. Um, For the merchants that we're in touch with, they are looking at, you know, potential innovation around how do we as a merchant accept payments in cryptocurrency? So that's something that we've seen launched in the market in niche use cases today. But at scale, you don't really see consumers buying coffee with cryptocurrency. There's an issue there where even though there are efficiencies with instead of T plus one or T plus three or T plus five, it takes, for example, in the case of Bitcoin, it takes 10 minutes to approve and settle and clear the transaction entirely end to end, um, which is way faster than what we do today. But also naturally a consumer can't sit at the till and wait for 10 minutes for that transaction to clear. They need that to happen in a matter of seconds. So for, you know, low ticket prices, Uh, high volume transactions, there's not really a currency that works at scale today, but there are companies that are building solutions around this where they will clear the transaction and take on the risk um, and then settle to the merchant in in a fiat currency or maybe even stable coins. But what we've seen in terms of both merchants and Web2 technology firms um, as a whole We've seen a lot of interest in crypto, cryptocurrencies and like things like DeFi and the metaverse. So I think if we compare, it also depends on the timeframe that you're talking about, right? Like I think in 2023, we're starting off on a very different footing than we did in 2022. Like if you compare things like market cap, 2022, we saw 2.2 trillion in the crypto industry and that market cap is sometimes seen as a proxy for like the size of the industry or the influence or success of crypto. And this year we started off the year with less than a trillion, right? The number of wallets did go up, but they went up kind of marginally. So what we did was in Q4 of 2022, we launched what we call the FIS um, global innovation report. Um, And we surveyed 2000 senior executives across all types of functions, both in financial services and non-financial services, things like secretaries of countries and ask them from a broad technology perspective. What are you interested in? Where are you investing dollars? What's holding you back from embracing or investing in some of these topics and of all the technology areas that we surveyed? Um, About three crypto topics came up in the top five when it came to interest in a three year time horizon. So ESG and embedded finance were two of them, but then the other three were DeFi, the metaverse and cryptocurrencies. And what was interesting about that report was um, 98% of the respondents said, for example, that they want to be involved in the metaverse, but less than half are actually investing. So they all think it's going to be a big area, but they're not hiring for it just yet. They're not investing in it just yet. Um, Similarly, 95% said that they think they'll have some sort of crypto service in the future, but they're not investing today. So people seem really interested, but they're not necessarily willing to put money behind it yet. They're paying attention, though. And I think um, when we surveyed them, what was holding them back was a number of different things. And I think these things are what prevents us from seeing scale today. Um, The first is lack of ecosystem services to support, right? There's not really the the tooling that's in place today to manage risk where people feel they don't have the data to make appropriate decisions. Also the, the crypto native companies that are offering services today may not be mature enough or at scale enough to work in an enterprise capacity. Um, there's also concerns about like in a metaverse, who's going to monitor the content that goes up there. What are some of the implications for, you know, consumer behavior, depending on that content. Um, and also in DeFi, the experience needs to improve you know i mean i'm sure your users know if they use DeFi, it's not something that the average person can just access and understand how to navigate easily so i would say from a merchant perspective everyone's exploring everyone's hiring a crypto team or talent in the space everyone's paying attention but especially in light of what's happened in the past kind of 18 months to 24 months from a regulatory perspective um, from a legal perspective, I think folks are hesitant to really uh, go all in at this point in time.
1: We won't dive too deep into the regulatory rabbit hole. We want to make sure that you, you are, you know, in a, in a good space with the compliance department. So we won't we won't investigate that too much. But um, I do understand it's, a, it's an impact, right? Because it is, it's progressing and it's starting to materialize in the regulatory shape. Um, so it, it's becoming a little bit more, you know, I think a little bit more in the public eye, how, how crypto is received by some of these regulators, they're kind of being forced to, to look at it with an open mind. And I think that's ultimately healthy. Um, I'm glad that they're not in a very, you know, very quick rush. So I'll comment very quickly on the regulatory so that you don't have to, um, I, uh, I you know I, I like I like how it's progressing because the, they seem like they're they're hurrying but they're not rushing they're keeping an open mind and it's allowing these Web two companies and these traditional financial services companies to explore but without jumping in right so it's almost like they're they have a toe in the water they're kind of feeling it out but they're not they're not cannonballing headfirst um, into this industry and hiring and 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 really diving in and flooding the market with investments so. And almost makes me quite bullish on the ecosystem that they haven't quite deployed capital in, in that yet because they're waiting on regulatory approval. Um, and it, it gives me hope that we might see that in the future once uh, the regulatory chains are, are unleashed. Um, those Web2 companies, those traditional financial services then could capitalize on the opportunity of um, a still relatively early immature market um, and then, and then push it to new heights. So I, I think um, over the last 18 months or so, um, the regulatory progress, it's been, it's been slow and steady. And I think that's ultimately the right approach. So I'm, I'm uh, keen on seeing that continue. Um, I'm curious. Yeah, well, is- of- yeah on the, yeah.
0: As you mentioned, you know, regulators seem to be taking a calmer approach. What I will say on regulation is I think most policymakers have come out and said, you know, there's been critical events in the crypto industry, things like the collapse of FTX, um, Luna and Terra, what happened there, They're massive failures, but they didn't seem to have a systemic impact on financial services broadly. Um, I think one of the downsides of that is, uh, you know, folks in the industry have been hoping for some time to get one kind of global standard approach to regulation. But it's become clear that that's probably not going to happen. An example is the UAE and the EU are in the process of deploying what they're trying to make a fit for purpose regulation with Vara or MiCA, respectively. Then you have countries like the UK that have come out and published their viewpoint from their treasury that there's not going to be a new framework for crypto specifically. They're going to use the existing framework. And if they need to come up with some sort of exception or use case, they will. But they're going to fit you know, digital assets into what is already on paper from a regulatory perspective. And then the U.S., you see what's becoming known as regulation by enforcement. And there's a lot of judicial action happening in the United States. But we haven't seen a real crypto regulatory framework in any state or federally. It's just enforcement right now. And, um, you know, people seeing what sticks. So I think it's great that there wasn't a broader fallout, like what happened in the in the financial crisis in 2008. Um, and I do agree that I think regulators, they might be you know, trying to move at a certain pace, but there were some events that probably left some of them feeling like they need to give this a lot of attention. But when we see a divergence in regulation in different geographies, it makes it hard for firms like WorldPay that operate globally to know how to participate because we can only offer payment services to companies that are licensed. So um, different markets, you know, regulate different financial services uh, differently. So payments are regulated a very heavily, heavily regulated um, sector. And, you know, some countries might choose to regulate the spot market or derivatives, etc. But it's, you know, some markets haven't really come up with a clear guideline on what license you would need as a crypto exchange, for example, to offer products and services to consumers in those markets. So. For us, it requires a heavier investment to get, you know, external counsel, um, you know, legal attention to figure out can we operate in this market or not. So, I think you know, with regulation, hoping to see, you know, some more cemented policy so that global firms know what they can and cannot do. And I think the reason that's important is if we're going to see crypto really scale and see mass adoption. My personal view is. That's going to come at the hands of players like WorldPay and, you know, large web two players that have existing integrations with millions of merchants, existing contractual relationships who can deploy a solution. And when they do, it's already scaled. So an example of that is, you know, if you today want to buy crypto, you might need to go KYC at, uh, you know, an exchange like Coinbase or crypto.com. And you may not know how to navigate the UI, but if you have a banking app, for example, And suddenly you wake up and you see there's a buy, sell, hold crypto option. I think the two big things there are one, you already trust that service because you trust them with your money today. Um, So you're more likely to probably lean in and buy. If you see um, a, a feature or a widget on your existing app and two, you know, rather than each bank individually have to go and build that technology and that feature, if they have, you know, integrations, existing integrations, they can leverage those and with you know a web 2 company or a big technology player making that move it already enables a lot of players to offer crypto services at scale
2: taking a quick commercial break here to tell you guys about our lovely sponsors right before we get back to this fascinating discussion we have a message from our current sponsors here we go i want to take a moment to introduce you to our sponsor Premier Finance. Premium is a native options protocol that offers market-driven pricing and capital efficient returns for traders and liquidity providers. With Premiere, you can trade options on a variety of different crypto assets. What sets Premia apart is its unique pricing mechanism, which is based on the market's expectation of future volatility. This means that options prices are always in line with market conditions, which provides traders with the most fair and transparent pricing. Recently, Premia has just launched their Options Academy, where you can learn for free how to become a proficient options trader. Uh, feel free to check it out at premium.finance, hedge your risks or amplify your positions um, to earn more capital efficient returns on premium finance. Thank you. And another exciting sponsor to introduce you is Plan of Finance. I've recently uh, been onboarded as an advisor for Plan of Finance, which is one of the first self-custodial wallets to support account extraction. With Planet Finance, you can revolutionize your crypto experience and take control of your assets like never before. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing multiple wallets, hello to a seamless user-friendly experience. Planet Finance allows you to easily manage your assets, swap tokens, and earn rewards all in one place on your mobile phone. They have an app in the Apple App Store as well as in the Google Play Store. Uh, With Plana Finance's self-custodial wallet, you hold the keys to your assets, ensuring the highest level of security and privacy. With tons of cool features like gasless trading, um, interesting yield competitions, and cool NFTs, there's an amazing amount of effort going into building this app that already has tens of thousands of users. So what are you waiting for? Download Plana Finance today and experience the future of crypto wallets.
1: And, and they already have the brand recognition, like you're talking about. Those users are already onboarded to their local bank, so their their banking yeah. online banking applications. And it makes it makes so much more sense when it's integrated seamlessly into their existing offering, and then it feels native, um, so that they don't have to onboard somewhere else. Like if they don't or can't figure out the coin, Coinbase UI, um, a standard like plugin for. Traditional banks, right, to, to buy, sell, hold crypto. I mean, it's such a game changer because they already have such a massive audience. Um, we see a lot of crypto companies right now trying to get users. They're trying to grow like a tech firm that has a B two C offering, and we, we're just realizing like, like crypto native audience grows when the price goes up. Those users are not here day in and day out to use these almost infrastructure types of applications because. It's it simply, it just doesn't have the user base, the crypto native, uh, demographic is it's growing, but it's not growing as quickly as, uh, it could grow if it was tapping into these access channels, like existing payment systems and existing banks. And there's a, there's a movement. One of the most prominent crypto podcasts is bankless. Right. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about like the, the current intermediaries that. You got that WorldPay works with on on a daily basis, you know those those you know as, as you called them are, are intermediaries, and I'm curious if if there's almost like a I don't know exactly how to how to how to phrase this, but one of the main motivations of crypto is to disintermediate and and engage more peer-to-peer economy. So, do you think there's a world where those banks adopt crypto? and and adopt blockchain technology to enable a more peer-to-peer economy? Um, Do you think they are at risk of being disintermediated? Do they care? What is, you know, what is your take on kind of like the, like be your own bank movement, and do you think that that might kind of undercut some of the, some of the existing banking partners and fintech uh, companies that, that exist today?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I think. In different people have different viewpoints about this. What we've seen in payment technology, for example, is change, big change is driven by consumer behaviors and consumer demand. So I don't see, you know, peer to peer payments know, the way that are designed by protocols like Bitcoin going, you know, taking over card payments today because consumers are comfortable with card payments because consumers trust Card payments because consumers have seen card payments work in the past, and the UI is in, is customer friendly. So, I think that once consumers or you know once DeFi tooling or peer to peer payment tooling and DLT becomes more user friendly, there might be more of a demand from consumers. But I think trust in crypto right now has taken a massive hit with the events in the past twelve to eighteen months, and that definitely deters progress towards a future where. We are completely bankless, right? Which I don't think in the short or medium term, there's any threat to that personally. I think if we talk about trust a little bit, um, it's really essential in financial services, right? Where you have these central authorities who are responsible for safeguarding your funds for transmitting trillions of funds globally. So securing and maintaining trust with our consumers, for example, has always been mission critical to us. And we invest in a bunch of tools, people, practices to ensure that we can settle transactions to merchants safely, right? Because today there are ledgers that are owned by central authorities like WorldPay, like Visa, like banks, and they do validate transactions, and those transactions do settle, right? So sometimes you can you hear in the industry that Visa and Mastercard may be the most, um, you know, credible uh, creditors other than the federal government. So. Cryptocurrency is a new innovation, and yes, it can disrupt the way we choose to transfer value um, across borders, but it has to establish trust with its user base to prove an actual credible contender to what we offer today. And I think if you don't trust crypto, it kind of combats all of the improvements and efficiencies that it could offer because people that need to build in that space or regulate it or consume it or invest in it would be hesitant to lean forward, right? So when you see scams and fraud and hacks, that doesn't support um, the movement to to adopt, right, to build, to invest. So I feel like we, we need to have some sort of barometer to measure this, like the state of trust in crypto to inform decision makers of, you know, how to optimize their crypto strategy. But um, I think it's it's easy to build. I mean, sorry, it's, it's easy to um, lose trust, but it's really difficult to build, right? So uh, I don't think... DLT is any exception to this, but what I will say is the jury's still out on whether the industry can tighten controls and have appropriate regulation to limit that, um, and deliver on trust in the future. But I think for a web two company that actually means we're in a better position to enable growth because we do have consumer trust. So if we launch a crypto app, um, or a crypto use case or crypto product or solution, We already have that trust with our consumer and because we are a regulated financial services institution, um, you can, I think consumers feel more comfortable. Merchants feel more comfortable knowing that the products that I'm getting in fiat today or the assurity that I'm getting in fiat today will be the same if, you know, I'm getting a settlement in stablecoin, for example. I think that, I hope that answers your question.
1: It does. And I think so too. I think the regulated institutions already have the, the trust of the consumer and rather than crypto trying to build up that trust, sometimes losing it and even once you lose it it's even more difficult to get it back, the financial institutions that already have that trust are in the best position to capitalize on growth in dlt and crypto. and and it it probably means incorporating dlt in the back end under the hood with consumers not even realizing that they're using crypto or blockchain, but it it Benefiting them in terms of capital efficiency and the kinds of financial products that they consume. Um, so I want to I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about DeFi because you know DeFi has a lot of very cool, very exotic but very cool financial products that it offers. Um, and right now it doesn't have the user base, probably because it doesn't have the trust of of consumers to engage in those financial products. But if regulated financial institutions such as worldpay such as your bank if they were to incorporate defi under the hood and then offer those financial products as a regulated financial product part of the product suite that worldpay or your local bank offers it probably has a lot more traction it's probably it probably has a lot more trust and there's a there's a lot more likelihood that it's it's consumed and it's well received by the end end consumer so I want to, I'm curious, what, what excites you most about DeFi? Do you see any financial institutions right now that are starting to incorporate DeFi uh, products into their product suite? Um, Yeah, generally, what, what are your thoughts on DeFi? What, what's new and what's, what's exciting you most about DeFi?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, so personally, the same kind of uh, benefits excite me that I think get everybody's interest. Things like access to. Capital where you otherwise wouldn't have access to capital things like yields where which don't even compare to what a bank can give you. Um, Things like ownership of your own assets throughout that process, right? You don't need to have an institution that you trust that can turn you off if they feel you're an illicit actor based on whatever metrics they've determined, you know, constitutes an illicit actor. So I think those elements make it really exciting. Yield being the one that Keeps kind of the larger fintech players, merchants, web two companies excited, um, just from a capital management and a treasury, you know, approach to to DeFi. I think what I've seen in the industry though is the inherent risks of playing in DeFi have kept a lot of players at bay. Um, the inherent risks coupled with we don't have a clear regulatory framework, and if I was just to touch on for WorldPay, for example. Um, There is this notion generally amongst, you know, compliance teams, legal teams, regulatory teams, that crypto is used for illicit activity. And when you're offering financial products, you know, on the backbone of DeFi, um, that narrative just perpetuates. So I think part of the reason it even took, you know, exchanges so long to allow consumers to pay with things like cards is because the intermediaries that we've talked about, they need to be educated. They need to be known that they need to be taught and showed how you can monitor and mitigate risks when it comes to crypto. That's why getting those banking partner um, relationships took so long because it's a complex ecosystem and everybody needs to get comfortable with the new innovation. So I think um, if you look at the early days of the Internet, though, it was the same thing. Everybody was saying, you know, the Internet's used for nefarious purposes and now everybody uses the Internet to do almost everything. So. Any new technology kind of goes through that same scrutiny and DeFi is, is no exception. And I think that, you know, if we can solve things like, you know, regulatory compliance risk and credit risk, and I can touch on what those are. So with crypto services from a regulatory compliance risk perspective, um, they like the services have to be legal for us to offer to our consumers. So if we're going to ever adopt a DeFi product, we need to make sure that wherever we're doing it, the regulator has given us the OK. We don't have that. So you're not seeing, you know, where in payments, it's easier for us to navigate in DeFi less so because we don't have the experience in DeFi. I don't think anybody does because it's, it's so new. Um, so I think that's from a regulatory compliance risk, difficult to build from a Web2 perspective. Credit risk is another really interesting one. So as a payment processor, if a merchant becomes insolvent and a lot of people don't know this, but if they can't deliver the goods that the consumer bought, And oftentimes it's WorldPay and other payment processors that are left having to work with consumers to make them whole. And it's Visa and MasterCard that push that liability down to us. So I'll give you an example. In COVID, if you are a merchant that's, you know, an airline or a travel agency, and a consumer buys a flight or an experience, and in COVID you can't offer that, that consumer has the right to file a chargeback. And in a lot of those scenarios, we had exposure to make that consumer whole. So similarly, if we're going to offer a financial services product like crypto, um, if you're in exchange and you get hacked and the consumer had purchased crypto from you, like WorldPay would be responsible to to make you whole. So I think in DeFi, it's really tricky for us to play because there's so much risk from a credit exposure perspective. Um, It's an exciting product, and I think it just needs more time for people to get educated, ramped up on it. And figure out how to, you know, have controls in place to mitigate some of those risks.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, those are some of the the concerns that we talk about on a daily basis. Talking to crypto projects and DeFi tooling uh, projects, you know, they they have not they have not gotten that level of maturity and security um, that is necessary to incorporate into an existing financial product suite. Um, I think we're getting there, you know, every day people are building, even in, during bear markets, people continue to build uh, sophisticated financial products and, and security is paramount. Um, and I think DeFi, uh, builders are aware of, uh, the adoption curve that requires security. Um, and the other, the other thing I want to, I want to kind of break into is, um, you know, my my inclination is that there becomes robust enough security measures um, around DeFi tooling and, and DeFi products um, that they do end up, uh, in the regulator's point of view, secure enough to offer to end consumers. Um, and in that in in that same thread, like, you know, let's say that let's say that you know it is secure. Um, it is adopted and there's a regulatory framework. You guys have, you know, the regulator's approval to, to incorporate some of these, these tools. I'm curious how that looks like. I, I'm curious about the question of a, of a private blockchain versus a public blockchain. Because when we, when we talk about DeFi, you know, the key there is decentralization and there's JP Morgan developing their DLT stack. There's other, other, you know, Visa, other payment processors and merchant services developing uh, their own permissioned blockchains. Um, and it may it may seem decentralized because it's on a it's on a distributed ledger, but it doesn't take decentralization in the liquidity uh, providers, um, or you know it, it it is more decentralized than just one institution, but not as decentralized as an entire peer to peer economy. So I'm curious in your, in your point of view, and if you know you can speak to WorldPay's uh, position or approach to crypto and, and DLT, are you guys looking at incorporating these products on a, per, a permissioned blockchain or a public blockchain such as Ethereum? Um, and if it is a public blockchain, I'm curious what blockchains have caught your eye um, and what might be the settlement layer that traditional financial institutions use to settle their transactions?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's one that's a bit ahead of its times. Um WorldPay today doesn't hold any crypto on its balance sheets. So we don't interact directly with any protocols. Ethereum, Bitcoin, even stable coins, we, we go to market with partners who, you know, leverage blockchain technology on our behalf. So I think a lot of web two firms haven't gotten to the point where they're comfortable actually including this as an asset class that they're holding on their balance sheet and knowing how to account for things like tax implications and how that works across different borders. So what's happening today is if you're going to be offering a product, if it's a financial services product, if it's a payment product, if it's on a permission blockchain or not, you're not doing it on your own. You're doing it with a partner, right? Um, The way that I see this going is I feel that it's going to be important for any Web2 firm, a technology firm or a payment firm or or a bank to have controls in place to be able to approve and deny and and gatekeep, essentially, to be able to be adherent to current regulation. The specific regulation I'm talking about is ensuring that money laundering isn't happening and ensuring that sanction screening is is being done because financial services firms can get really heavily fined or suffer, suffer deep, you know, reputational losses if they don't. So if you're offering a DeFi product and an illicit actor or somebody that's deemed an illicit actor is participating in that, and you don't have the controls in place on your blockchain to check or sanction screen, who are the individuals that we're offering these services to if you don't have a KYC tool to do that um, on an unpermissioned blockchain, for example, then you are exposing yourself to a lot of liability. Um, And because like a JP Morgan, for example, crypto might be a small percentage of their overall balance sheet. It's just not going to be worth the risk. Why would we risk our reputation with our regulator? Why would we risk the services and the revenue that we're generating from our core suite of products to be able to offer this service where we don't feel comfortable with the controls and being able to speak to regulators and saying like, Hey, we're actually able to do this on this or that blockchain. So I think the risk is just way too high now um, and like, juries out on how that's gonna, how that's gonna play um, for WorldPay, We're not doing it. So I can't really comment. Um, but I do think like companies like Fireblocks are making it really easy for firms to feel comfortable at least dipping their toes in the water because they've created a product that can ensure sanctioned screening is done before the funds are transmitted on the blockchain. Yeah. So um, they've done really well, um, scaling that product. So I think we're going to have to wait to see how this all plays out. I think it's going to depend on a different market. Different markets are going to be more more um, forward leaning towards things like open networks than not. But in this space, I imagine it would be you know developers and builders ground up that are doing a public service, so to speak, in, in building a product that they think can can scale without a Web2 player support. I, I think like all things DeFi are, more likely to come from private private players than, than big banks right now. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that there's a compelling um, use case right now for what's known as account abstraction in in DeFi, and the the ethos of, of Ethereum and and a lot of public blockchains is censorship resistance, and in order to prevent money laundering, you have to censor money laundering transactions. So, you know, the, there is uh, some some give and take between uh, the censorship resistance and the compliance with regulation. Um, the, the reason I bring up account abstraction is because that censorship resistance takes place at the protocol level. It, it's only on the blockchain. Before you end up putting something on the blockchain, like at the fireblocks level, you know, that that is very easily gate kept and can be KYC'd. Um, and that is the account abstraction that is that is kind of taking place right now. So it's a, it's a pretty buzzwordy narrative that's kind of that's kind of capturing a lot of the crypto native space right now. Um, it, it's it's taking the shape of um the inclusion into the web two space and the traditional financial space by, by gatekeeping the, order, um, and then letting any, anything that does get past that gate actually settle on the, on the chain. Um, you can keep the chain censorship resistant, but then also gatekeep what ends up on the chain. Um, so that, that's something that I I personally think is going to unlock a lot of value and a lot of opportunities between collaboration in the web two and the web three fi- like, internet of value um, because if we can get account abstraction and that is kind of the missing piece um, to let financial institutions and web two players um, kind of open pandora's box as to what happens on chain i think there's there's a lot of opportunities because um no one wants to see money laundering you know like no one wants to elicit transactions not even DeFi dgens want to let that happen like there there is motivation to stop Illicit activity, um, but there's also motivation to prevent um, centralized censor uh, censorship um, and kind of stifle people and, and uh, oppress people's financial services. So I think both are very valiant uh, efforts, and hopefully there's there's some increase in there's some increase in focus on the tools that end up uh, kind of achieving both of those goals on the front end. Um, letting people KYC and gatekeep those those transactions, and then on the back end, um, keeping it censorship resistant and making sure that um, those financial tools are open to everybody, um, so that no group is oppressed um, with with respect to transactions that do go on the blockchain. Um, yeah, so hopefully soon. You know, I, I think it is still a work in progress. It's a little bit too early to tell, but hopefully soon we're able to to cross uh, kind of cross that, that chasm and, uh, unite those two fronts.
0: I think you've hit on a really core philosophical dilemma that, you know, kind of very concretely differentiates the financial ecosystem today in fiat and what a lot of builders in crypto are hoping to create in a, in an economy where transactions, yeah so a lot of what the builders are trying to create in a in a dlt world and i think the the difficulty is today if you want to participate in the financial ecosystem and pay for things online you need to go to a bank they need to KYC you. they collect a ton of details on who you are and then they monitor all of your transactions they create thresholds around which what is considered an appropriate transaction based on how much you're spending every month who you're sending money to etc and they profile you and then they're able to create thresholds with which if you're over or below, or if you're sending money to a player that you normally don't, they're able to identify that and they're able to ask questions. And then if they're not comfortable with your answers, then they do have the right to freeze your assets, right? So that's the world we live in today where we you know, trust the central authorities with ownership of our funds, um, you know, and there are situations where we can't even... Get money out of our banks sometimes depending on the economy and and what's happening things like bank runs um and it's very different in the digital asset ecosystem where you can spin up a digital wallet uh, it's pseudonymous you know it's just a string of letters and numbers in that scenario there is no kyc you have access to a blockchain where you can you know earn earn cryptocurrency send cryptocurrency use it in whatever way you want where there is opportunities for you to, to spend it you can And there's no bank in charge of freezing your money. If they think that you're sending it to an illicit actor, or they think that you're, you know, uh, purchasing goods that could be illegal. So account abstraction, if it's able to solve for this, where, you know, people can leverage the benefits of transferring value on an internet native currency, but then still, you know, allow for BSA standards or bank secrecy act standards to be met. And those are the ones that you know ensure that financial services firms payment companies are adhering to sanctions law are adhering to money laundering rules and you know you know billions are spent from from all of these banks and payment companies to have compliance teams in house to adhere to these rules right whether or not they're effective is a whole other story but that's the world we live in today and these are the two philosophies that keep crypto and fiat very separate because There's different rules and there's different standards of ownership, and there's different um, protocols that dictate how you can send money and who can send money and when can they send money. And so I agree with you in the future, if we can solve for a way to bring those two together, then we're, then we're at a place where, you know, we can see crypto use for payments that scale potentially. Um, But we're definitely not there today. And I think, you know, I've seen use cases where if a merchant is trying to enable a pay by crypto solution, And a consumer is paying with cryptocurrency in what markets are we actually able to do that legally because if that consumer is paying over a certain amount for example say 2000 euros then there is a requirement for that merchant to check who the consumer is and if they're paying with a crypto wallet if it's a centralized exchange wallet then you know they've already been kyc and there's a way to pull that data if it's a DeFi wallet then there is no way to identify that consumer. So maybe they can make payments online to that merchant below a certain value, um, but not above. And so, you know, when you're thinking about the total addressable market size for a product like this, it becomes really difficult to build one because one, you don't know if the partners that you're going to use to go to market with are going to be maybe, you know, uh, hit with the Wells notice or they're going to be irreputable or the the product that they're building is going to be regulated out or, know new regulation around crypto means that you've built this product and the merchant has enabled this product but you know we can't have appropriate kyc tooling so if there's a future where we can kind of find a way to merge the the political thesis behind these two worlds i think that could be a very interesting space to live in
1: yeah i think so too and i i hope i hope we find that common ground between those two philosophies because i think both of them are I, th- I think both of them are, are somewhat righteous, like both of them are trying to do the right thing. It's just a matter of, of like the mechanism um, and kind of how they choose to install their philosophy. You know, like banks and financial institutions, um, they protect others because they feel like they have the best capability to protect other people's money. And the, I mean, we can see there is billions of people who trust banks with their money because they are in the best position to protect that capital. Um, and then we, you know, see the censorship resistance route, the self-custody route. And we see how there's a philosophy brewing of um, people who don't want to trust. They want to verify that they have ownership of over their own capital. Um, and I think both of those are totally valid. Um, so it would be, it would be very cool to give both options um, and let both of them flourish. Uh, and, and they might go in two different directions, but I think supporting. Uh, both of those options for consumers ends up giving, giving consumers more options. Um, It lets them choose their own path and, and hopefully um, consumers uh, find more valuable and they, they feel like they're more involved in their own lives and their own finances. Um, I think, I think, you know, that that's kind of the common ground and we're, we're here to educate, you know, like, I, I think part of the missing piece on both. The Web two side and the Web three side is is education about the other side, um, and I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to have this podcast. I really really appreciate you coming on and, and providing the Web two and the traditional financial perspective, because I think it's it's just as important to educate the Web three uh, world and the crypto natives about the Web two perspective. I think that's just as important as vice versa, and educating the Web two world and and the traditional financial institutions about the capital efficiency and the potential of, of blockchain technology. Um, so I, I hope through this podcast, we're able to educate. I certainly was able to learn more about the web two perspective. Um, and I hope we have, have more opportunities to, uh, to educate, uh, both, both of these worlds and people learn from, uh, listening to this podcast.
0: Yeah, I fully agree. It was a great discussion. Thank you for having me on the show and you've got to call me back in a few years and we can chat about how it all played out.
1: Yeah chat about Worldcoin and uh and uh, how how it's taken over the world or not yeah that, that would be cool before i let you go we have one question that we ask just about everyone who comes on the podcast um and it might be a mute mute question because you probably have the opportunity to to, to connect with almost everyone out there in the in the financial services world but the question is this um if you were to uh to explain world pay and your perspective um to anyone in the world or anyone that has ever lived, you know, it could be someone dead. It could be someone alive. Like who would you want to explain world pay? What, what you do, who would you want to explain that to and why?
0: Wow. That's a big question. A lot of riding on my answer here. I feel, Um, no,
1: no wrong answers.
0: Yeah. If I were to choose one person to explain world pay to, other than my parents who always ask me when, no matter how many times I tell them, they don't understand. Um,
1: It's the same in the web three world.
0: Yeah. Honestly, in this space, probably somebody that is trying to build solutions for payments at scale. Um, Anyone that's building a DAP or like a layer one protocol, I would love to tell them what we do so that they can build it in a way where we can use it so that their solution can actually reach the millions of merchants that that we already touch. because I do believe that there's there's a lot of good we can do with the technology. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of costs. There's a lot of you know speed concerns. Money's not moving and getting to where it needs to be on time. And I'm really passionate about improving that. Um, and so if there's anyone that's building a solution, I would love to chat with them and tell them what we do so we can ground up, build it in a way where we can scale it fast.
1: Great answer. Yeah, and I'm sure there's there's plenty of layer ones, layer twos, dApps, and builders that would love to love to connect and, and talk about it.
0: Yeah, reach out.
1: <laughs> cool. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. I, I really do appreciate you, you taking the time and having the podcast.
0: Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Robbie. Until next time.
1: Let's do it again. Cheers.
0: Bye.
2: Thanks for listening to the DeFi by Design podcast and a big thank you to all of our sponsors for their support. Please check them out in the links below as well as on our website and in our newsletter. We'll be back with more exciting guests and insights. Until then, stay curious, stay informed, and keep designing the future of DeFi.